Are you an early stage founder looking to grow your SaaS? The SaaS Doc Founder Membership is a private community of ambitious SaaS founders where you can get a support network of peers, connect with like-minded founders around the globe, and learn proven strategies from industry experts to help you scale up your SaaS. If you want to get access to peer groups, investor meetings, mentor hours, and more to help you scale faster together, then visit sasdoccom forward slash founder hyphen membership to apply, or just go to sasdoccom and go up to the header menu and click on memberships. And even your application form, if it's right for you, mention the SAS Revolution show to apply for an exclusive discount. Find your SAS tribe and thrive with the SASDOC founder membership. At SASDOC APAC this September the 2nd, over 600 SAS founders, CEOs and execs, just like you, will come together and leave equipped to scale. This year, not one, not two, but three founders of unicorn businesses from across the Asia-Pacific region will be gracing the online stage. Appia's Winnie Lee, Charge B's Krish Subramanian, and Go One's Andrew Barnes. Learn the playbooks, tactics, and strategies that enabled these local legends to succeed. Register for free on sastock.com forward slash APAC. Think about what makes every role successful and figure out what they need. However small it is, that maturity, we cannot wait for that to happen at a certain stage of number that how everybody was advising previously. All of those needs to happen much, much earlier than how it used to be in a remote world. Hey everyone, welcome back to the SaaS Revolution show brought to you by SaaStock the conference that helps SaaS companies get traction, growth, and scale. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, and I'll be looking at what it really takes to build and grow a SaaS company today, and how founders and entrepreneurs stay healthy on the journey. Now on with the show. Hi, Krish. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, good evening, Gary. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Welcome all the way. I mean, pretty uh, pretty amazing that you're joining us, given your five and a half hours ahead from me anyway in London. So I um, very much appreciate your time and really excited for the conversation. Um, obviously, you spoke in our prep call about kind of the pretty epic success of Charge B since 2011, uh, when you guys founded. So would you mind just kind of introducing yourself and the business very swiftly so that we can get onto the topic in hand? Um. Sure. Uh, I think it's very important to qualify the, the epic success since 2011, <laughs> to put it in context, so we don't get carried away. Right. So it was not an overnight uh, uh, success by any measure, right? or even... Uh, so let me start with uh, a brief intro. Right. My name is Krish Subramanian, co-founder and CEO of ChargeB. ChargeB streamlines uh, and simplifies revenue operations through subscription management and billing for global customers. Um, and uh, we have majority of our customers in North America and 35% in Europe, 60% in North America, 35% in Europe, and the rest in APAC. And we manage about $4 billion of ARR of our customers. So that's my crux is what we do. 
really in, in, interested to have this conversation because we work with a lot of companies who are kind of scaling and have done really well. And they're obviously looking at that next summit, if you like, and kind of questioning, is it international? Is it new markets? And obviously the topic of that we're going to talk about is around new markets. But there's obviously also other considerations around use cases and product and the tech being developed and flipped in different ways. Um, and yeah, I kind of run a firm that where that's kind of what we do. So that's why I'm fascinated by chatting with Krish. Um, he probably could tell that in the prep. So um, one of the things that I was really interested in before we just jump into the internationalization point was we spoke a little bit about how really it took you until 2016 to really establish what you believe to be the absolute sweet spot product market fit. Um, and obviously you were serving customers from India and Chennai uh, where, you're, where you guys are still based. So just wanted to understand what is it as a dynamic of product market fit that you need in place as that ultimate foundation before you take that internationalization uh, leap? Um, so yeah, a bit of that would be great to start. Excellent, excellent. I think um, I think to put it in context, we bootstrapped the company through the first two years and we it took us a year and a half to launch the product. And then it took us close to 12 or more, 12 to 14 quarters to get to the first million. And uh, then from the first million to the 10 million, we went there in nine quarters after that, right? So, so there was a lot of back and forth and the iterations that happened in those first 12 quarters to make sure that we were able to continue scaling from that point onwards. Um, in building the business. And I think that's what you're referring to as a, the 2016 as a crux. Um, I think from a product market fit standpoint, I think uh, um, the context is our model is inbound. We are built from Chennai um, with a bigger base in India. And then most of the team was here till we got to the $10 million stage, right? Except uh, VP of sales, Jermaine, who was there in the US. Um, and uh, by typical definition, inbound means the customers discover you and then they understand the value prop through a, uh, through a demonstration or a product-led growth model where they try the product and then they buy the product repeatedly and scalably, right? And what that is what we are looking for in the product market fit stage. Um, but having said this, right, even when more customers are buying repeatedly, more people are discovering uh, again and again, I think the, the key is, not all customers are equal at this stage. At the, especially the million dollar stage when the definition of who's your ideal customer and ideal customer segment is not defined, um, it's not that great. Um, it's not all customers are equal. So it's very important to know the context of market, which is very nascent and also which of your customers are the best customers and you want more of them. So if there are 100 or 200 customers, and if there are, let's say you have 200 customers and 100 are your best customers, and you would want your next 1,000 customers to look like that 100, not all your 200. So it, it becomes very, very important to know if you can repeatably find that 100 customers who are your best customers repeatably and scalably to know if you have product market fit and not just some revenue, but a very high quality revenue is what I would define as. Uh, the foundation for a good product market fit. And that is what we were searching for through the early days. Yeah. And so then when we we kind of spoke, it sounds like this 100% inbound model, you've got you're serving customers in the US, you're serving customers globally, but obviously Chennai based. So that leap that you kind of took to say, actually, we're at this kind of pivotal um, tipping point, I guess would be the best phrase, at which you think, we want to move into a market. We're going to actually move into a region. We're going to make that kind of big leap. What, like how, what went through your guys' minds as both founders, but also 
what are you looking back think about that was how did that go that first um branch into the international um sphere right um so the from our product perspective we scaled through the 1 to 10 million as well without moving up market right so we continued serving the smb customers right to so to say uh, i think the another proxy to look at this is the the 20 dollars maximum right selling less than $10,000 ACV or the $20,000 ACV is a bread and well, used to be the bread and butter of how we used to sell till we scale to the first 10 million. And I think that context is very important in terms of our decisions. So we did not have in-market presence in Europe to scale in uh, Europe or even US so to scale, except our VP of sales, Jermaine was there and then a couple of salespeople we hired somewhere when we were getting to the first 5 million range. But till that time, we scaled by focusing on the product to lead the, the internationalization efforts across geographies. Right? Um, uh, a case in point in Europe is part, deeper partnership with GoCardless was something that we prioritized, um, which is a UK-based payment processor, which is uh, alternative payments. And then we also prioritized uh, payment processing through PayPal, which is more international, uh, which has more international acceptance for pay with PayPal as a model. So we prioritize some of these decisions um, and also some key partners in different regions to lead the internationalization effort through product and also the other things which are typical like the localization of the product, uh, more payment methods that are uh, relevant to the geography. So we let our expansion to be driven through the same customer base. How do we repeatably and scalably do more of that through product was what we tried to prioritize through that at least the one to five million journey before we even made decisions to start investing locally to hire more people because it's scary, right? Because it's all about survival in the early days. And it's very important that you don't run out of money before you figure out how to scale the company. And that was what was going on in our mind. And that's how we drove the decisions to lead through product as a first iteration. So can I just, just on that, it's really interesting because lots of investors kind of would say, or, you know, lots of different founders as well, would say, be really wary if you're entering a, diff- a market. And we talked earlier about kind of getting the recipe, like you get the recipe locked down and you know exactly what you're doing, who you're selling to, where it brings value. So that kind of, I guess, product market fit, but also something you can then execute. You've got an execution kind of recipe as well. So it sounds like a lot of people that say that you shouldn't necessarily have to build out different features to the product in order to win with a different market that initially at the early stages for people some of the people at you know sub 10 million I guess ARR you should be in a position where you're just kind of really replicating and not building out additional features just to win in that first kind of initial dominant market is that something you thought about or did you just think no this is what we've got to do to win beyond where we're currently winning and we don't really care, quite frankly. I don't know. Um, just really interested in your perspective on that because it sounds like you did go in through building the additional product side. I think we all play to our strengths and the constraints that we have, right? Uh, so I didn't have a choice. We didn't have a choice. We were based in Chennai and we're selling globally. And it was very important to think what came more naturally, right? We are engineers and we like to build. Of course, you shouldn't get into the what is called the build trap where you build more and more features to figure out product market fit. That's not what I'm advocating. Rather, what I'm suggesting is guilt by association, right? To go deeper into any market, right? How do you leverage the partnerships 
the core value prop of the product should remain the same and you don't want to deviate too much from the core value prop and also the key reasons why the customers are choosing your product i think that remains the same uh, what we are trying to do is increasing the deal funnel increasing the more discovery of more customers you can also do that by eliminating the objections through partnerships yeah and um, so that is something i would definitely prioritize over building more features in the core of the product yeah that makes sense so when you first entered let's use europe because i know that was quite a learning experience for you guys um right. how did that how did that go what were the assumptions you made about the market that you kind of wish you hadn't what if i'm kind of watching and listening and i am definitely kind of taking on board everything right. else so please educate me <laughs> Um, what is it that what is it that we should all take from your experience of that first entry into Europe? Sure. Um, so by the time we had expanded in Europe, two things happened. One, we had a reasonable sized team in US, so we had some learnings in terms of how the the international work happened right across different time zones. So we were reasonably familiar. And the second thing that was also happening was. From a context of the selling proposition, we were from the $20,000 to selling $50,000 deals. The $50,000 the deals were happening occasionally. And now we were moving into a territory where uh, we wanted to figure out more of that, right? How to repeatably scale more of the $50,000 to $100,000 deals, which was happening in North America. How do we replicate, replicate that in Europe is what we were trying to figure out. Now, this is the upmarket playbook that people talk about, right? Anytime you actually say, okay, I'm selling a $20,000, $20,000 ACVs to now moving into $50,000, $100,000 ACVs, how do I do that? Was what was happening to put it in context. So to be able to do that, what we thought was, okay, we could hire a few salespeople as an experiment and then see what happens, right? Because the deal flow is there because there are people more, more people discovering us. Maybe it's a question of having the local people to figure out how to sell better. But what we underestimated was the kind of support system that was needed to make a salesperson successful. Because what happens in a sub 1 million stage and the, even up to the 5 million stages, a uh, lot of founder-led growth happens where we wear multiple hats while going into any customer call. Uh, and then we play the role of even drawing out the roadmap, right? We even making promises in the product roadmap and then somehow win the customers through a lot of different things that we do, like solutioning, demonstrating the product, some magic, right? Or like whatever, like additional promises in the product and service that you do, which a, which a salesperson cannot take the freedom to do, right? And we take away that freedom away from them and then we expect them to be heroes is not going to happen that easily. So the biggest learning was having the right support system for the team to be successful, right? And that is where we failed in our initial foray into that region when we tried to have uh, drop two, three salespeople into that region and say, okay, now go figure out and then we will support you all remotely a little bit, right? And all of that was what we tried. And uh, our biggest learning was that did not work. And then we had to make a second attempt. And in that second, so the second time, obviously I'm guessing was quite different because you guys have scaled hugely in Europe as well. So what is it that you did the second time? I'm guessing obviously you gave people this operating system and the kind of baseline support level that you that you just um, suggested. But is there anything else beyond that that you kind of really can learn from about that second? Um, and what are the results? Of course, we all love the result. How's it going? <laughs> no, it's going definitely well now to the point where now Europe and US sales is almost similar, right? And 
um, in terms of uh, the new sales closures and all of that. So it's going extremely well. Uh, we now have about 20 people in the European region and about 45 people in US and the rest of the team about more than 400 people now back in India, right? And that's how the team is structured. Um, now, when it comes to uh, what we did differently, this time we hired the leader for the team, the site leader first, and then there is a sales leader. And we also hired uh, salespeople and also the support functions around this person to make sure that there were people who were available in that time zone to do uh, pre-sales solutioning, uh, customer success, even uh, technical account managers and customer support, all of that as a support function to enable. And more importantly, also invested in making sure the sales enablement function was set up to mature and support this global team. Uh, but without that, the upmarket move and also having people where, let's say you are hiring people in your home base. What happens is you tend to have a lot of people across different teams who tend to enrich their knowledge faster and it accelerates the learning curve of this group of people. And that is something we take for granted. <laughs> but when we are hiring people remotely, that doesn't happen because they are alone. And then this serendipitous knowledge transfer does not happen as often. And in a post-COVID world, in a, in a, now it's even harder right, to create those opportunities to learn. So which means that the support system has to be very deliberate to make people successful, including the maturity of the product marketing function and then sales enablement and giving them the materials, case studies, fast-tracking their knowledge about existing customers. Pretty much the entire support system had to be built so that these salespeople are more successful was necessary. Otherwise, we could not have ramped them up in the first three to six months for them to start doing the sales. So it's one thing to be able to hire successfully, but it's another thing to help them meet the quota fast enough in the first six months for them to have a deal funnel. And then from the seventh month, we are able to also start closing the revenue. Requires mm -hmm. us to build that organizational muscle to do that. Whether you do that in the 5 million or a 10 million or beyond that is very contextual depending on whether you are moving up market or not. But yeah. no, matter, no matter when you do that, it's very important to think about what makes the go-to-market function more successful and the context of the business is something that I would advise um, when you think about what do you want to repeatably do right. um, and when, whenever we are actually trying to figure out uh, new ways of doing things, it's important to think about building that organization muscle to support. That has been my learning. And if, if there was one role in that new organization of that new kind of, it's a rogue question, sorry, we didn't send this one. <laughs> but if oh, there was please. one role in that new setup of Europe that you think has helped Europe to get to almost that kind of same scale of, of the US, but with 20 people versus 45, which I think is like really impressive. I mean, love a bit of profitability. So that's great. Um, yeah. What would be the one role that you think was, you know, you underestimated hugely, but actually brought the most value? I think um, having a local site leader, the, the sales leader as a coach uh, to help the rest of the sales team, I think is the most important one because that person can play multiple roles to help them be more successful because they are not going to be the quota carrying person, but they are going to be heavily invested in making sure every salesperson is successful. They keep their ears to the ground and they can tell us what's missing in the organization. Like right? many a times when you put individual salespeople in those regions independently, they they do not know what's missing and they probably lack the maturity also to think about what else the organization needs. But having the leader, I think is more important, then you will identify the gaps and then serve the needs of that group to make them successful. Awesome. And I guess last question, we are running out of time, it's very quick. Um, but last question, I guess, is 
given where you are now and the scale that you guys have got to, what poses to be the challenge that people who are watching this have to kind of see coming in the future? So obviously, let's imagine that we have internationalized and we're all as um, doing as well as you are. What What's on the radar as the next challenge when it comes to internationalizing the business? I think the biggest one that we all underestimate today is um, the maturity with which the enablement functions have to scale faster to support the remote teams, I think has changed permanently because earlier we all used to be at least in one location to serve global customers. And we could do that and serendipitous meetings and the knowledge gaps supported by each other was something that we used to take for granted. And the organizational maturity was not needed and it could be filled through these meetings and people supporting each other during the same time zone. But with COVID, now everybody hiring remotely and people the serendipitous meetings going away. Uh, I think what needs to happen, especially for early stage founders, my biggest uh, advice is think about what makes every role successful and figure out what they need um, yeah. from an organization standpoint and start doing those investments, however small it is, because uh, that maturity, we cannot wait for that to happen at a certain stage of number that how everybody was advising previously but the sales enablement or investing in a product marketing team to enable sales, all of those needs to happen much, much earlier than how it used to be in a remote world is my uh, word of advice. Well, I think amazing. I mean, just the fact that you not only have joined from Chennai and it's very late your time, equally just such a successful SaaS business and so much to learn. I think a couple of things that I plucked out were playing to your strengths around, you know, when is the right time to do what, especially around kind of the way you went through a technical lens given an engineering background. And then obviously a huge focus on enablement and enabling people to be at their absolute best and giving them every tool that you can in their armory so they go into the battle very well versed so yeah a massive thank you from everyone at Sastock, obviously everyone listening and um, obviously myself thank you thanks carrie and chris and just to give you your props chris subramanian i uh, just want to mention that congrats on charge b being the outright outright leader in subscription management uh in g2 and the 21 percent growth over uh, the year of covid very impressive carrie osman and chris subramanian a fantastic interview thank you both very much Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the SaaS Revolution Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you learned something from it, check out sasdoc.com forward slash events to find all the upcoming SaaS Doc conferences around the world.